Hey there, architecture enthusiast. Nikita Reed here, inviting you on an incredible journey through time and space with my podcast, Tangible Remnants. Historic preservation and sustainability? Let's go ahead right now and debunk the myth that they are opposites. In fact, they are two sides of the same coin, shaping our collective future. In a work environment, it has been challenging because I've had to probably do more than double just to make sure that I quote unquote fit in. But the environments that have allowed me to do me on the front end, I've been extremely successful. You look at all these PhDs, they've built that on the backs of our elders. Absolutely. What they consider themselves to be experts at is what they've worked with us to achieve. I know we have to. We have to prioritize people before products and before place. Join me as we unravel the stories of historic buildings shaped by the people of a specific era and often influenced by race and gender. These tangible remnants are windows into our past and guideposts for the future. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe now to Tangible Remnants. Let's explore the interconnectedness of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender. LOL. Can we say LOL now on our podcast? Apparently, that's what I wrote. I said it twice. She said it twice. I know. But she says it like really yeah, shy. But it's like you're like, not you're actually what? laughing. You're just like, LOL. LOL. Welcome back to She Builds Podcast, where we share stories about women in the design and construction field, one lady at a time. Like we mentioned, this season we will be discussing ladies who influenced the built environment in professions outside of architecture. On today's episode, we will talk about Jane Adams, who was the co-founder of the first settlement house in the U.S. I'm Lizzie Rar, celebrating Jessica's birthday again yeah. in San Francisco, and I'm joined by my fellow co-hosts, Jessica and Nerjiti. I'm Nerjiti Rivas, still celebrating... Jessication Nation Woo! in Houston, Texas. And I'm Jessica Rogers celebrating me, thanking everyone for the birthday wishes from Washington, D.C. Like always, our quick disclaimer, the three of us are not historians, nor are we experts on this subject. We're just sharing stories about the information that we find about each woman. If we get our facts a little mixed up, please forgive us. Leave us a comment and we will all continue learning. All right, let's talk about Jane Adams. She was born Laura Jane Adams on September 6, 1860 in Cedarville, Illinois, which is close to Rockford and the Wisconsin border. She was child number eight, but only four of the kids in her family lived into adulthood, and Jane's mother died when Jane was only two years old, so she was mostly raised by her older sisters. This is a sad start. Yeah, that's really sad. But I guess there is a benefit of having older siblings. Yeah. Yeah. So her dad, John H. Adams, was a big businessman in the area. And eventually he was actually an Illinois senator. And he was friends with Abraham Lincoln, who apparently called him my dear double deed Adams. <laughs> <laughs> what? what just 
big man boobs? <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Did he have like a bra fetish? Wait, but did they even establish bra sizes back then? Did the wife have double D's? So I think Jessica's right. There are no bra sizes and it has nothing to do with boobs. <laughs> I think it's literally <laughs> that he has two D's in Adams. It's a very oh. literal nickname. Oh. Uh, I like Jessica's answer more. <laughs> yeah. But then again, this episode's about Jane. True, Actually, true. I changed my mind. I like Lizzie's answer. And from now on, we should call Lizzie Double A Rar. <laughs> yeah, Double A Rar. That's cool. <laughs> Hashtag Double A Rar. Hashtag I feel like Double A are going to make assumptions about me. Okay, well, let's go back to Jane then. Yes. Well, Jane really loved her father, and he encouraged the children to be educated. Apparently, he paid Jane five cents for every one of Plutarch's lives that she read, and 25 cents for every volume of Washington Irving's Life of Washington. Oh, Plutarch's Lives. Stories of Greek men. Great read. Yes, great read. Well, Jane was focused on helping the poor from a very young age through her reading of various fiction like Dickens. She wanted to do something to help the world, and she decided that she wanted to become a doctor to live and work with the poor. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah. A Tale of Two Cities is one of my favorite books. Ooh, yes. I love that one, too. So, unfortunately, Jane was sick a lot as a kid, and in particular, she got scoliosis that left her pigeon-toed and with a limp which she said made her feel ugly and marginalized as a kid. Okay, this story is giving me a lot of ups and downs. Seriously, what a rough childhood. I know. So even though her dad really wanted his daughters to be educated, when Jane wanted to go to Smith College after high school, her dad was not into it. He wanted her to stay close to home. So he made her go to Rockford Female Seminary, which is now Rockford University, which was right near home. Oh, come on, Papa Adams. You are doing so well supporting her. Why turn it around like that? Well, I guess it worked out better for her because of her disability. I guess, but I think it was more that he just wanted her to stay close to home. Hmm. So hmm. she got a certificate in 1881 from the seminary as the valedictorian. And the next year, the school was accredited as Rockford College. So Jane went back to get an official degree and graduated a year later with a Bachelor of Arts degree, one of the first that was offered by the new college. Go, Jane! In Double D's face! <laughs> uh, we are always announcing the firsts. Whoop, whoop, whoop. Yeah. Well, during that same year, her dad died suddenly from appendicitis. And all of the kids inherited $50,000, which today is about... 1.3 million. What the what? 1.3 million dollars? Oh, hey. Money, money. Double D's for the double the dollars. Oh. <laughs> this story is such a roller coaster of emotions. <laughs> yes. I know. A lot of ups and downs. So Jane still really wanted to go to medical school, and she actually attended Women's Medical College in Philadelphia for a time. But her health and her back issues caused her to drop out. OMG, let there please be a happy ending to one of these tragedies. Seriously. Yeah. Well, her brother-in-law, Harry, was able to operate on her spine to correct her scoliosis. 
but the recovery was long and I think it was really tough for her. I read a few different articles that noted either a nervous breakdown and or depression during the recovery time. And during this time, Jane decided that she didn't need to be a doctor in order to help the poor. There's so many ways to help the poor. I'm excited to hear what she decided to do. So when she was 27, she and Ellen Gates Starr, who was her friend from college and her lover, traveled to Europe together. From seminary school? Yeah. I mean, it was college. (laughs) Lol. LOL. (laughs) Yeah, but, but it started out as seminary, apparently. That's interesting that they would meet and get together in an environment that was probably not welcoming to them, much less at that time. Shows how much they probably cared for each other and that what they would risk. Well, they probably hid it from the public. Yeah, that's true. Um, Jane did write to Ellen once. Let's love each other through thick and thin and work out a salvation. <gasps> oh, how scandalous and romantic. Ooh, that's like another soap opera for Netflix. <laughs> So Jane and Ellen were in Europe and they heard about an experiment that was being done in London's East End by Oxford grads called Toynbee Hall, which was the first settlement house. Wait, I thought you were about to say an experiment on her legs. (laughs) Yeah, I got thrown for a loop. An experiment about what? What are settlement houses? Yeah, what are those? Okay, so... Settlement houses were part of a reformist social movement at the turn of the 20th century, and they were trying to bring rich and poor society together, both physically and socially. The idea was to focus on neighborhood life and the neighborhood as a whole rather than individual social services. So Jane went to visit and see the house and the setup with the intention of returning to Chicago and starting a settlement house of her own. Oh, okay. That's such a thought-provoking concept. Yeah, so in 1889, Jane and Ellen opened up Hull House in Chicago. The house was an old mansion that was built by Charles Hull, but it was falling into disrepair. They leased the house from Hull, and Jane paid for all the initial repairs that were needed. And later on, costs were supplemented by donations. And eventually, they had long-term donors who helped cover the expanding budget. That's such an interesting achievement to create something so new and then receive enough sponsors to sustain it. That's so cool. Yeah, she spent a lot of time going to speak about the project and to raise money for it. And the idea of the house was, quote, to provide a center for higher civic and social life, to institute and maintain educational and philanthropic enterprises, and to investigate and improve the conditions in the industrial districts of Chicago. Jane and Ellen were the first two residents of the house, and later, 25 women would live there. Ooh, that sounds very cool. Yeah, they were trying to achieve a lot of things. Was it only for women? No, it wasn't just for women, but I think that just happened to be who Jane was able to get to come live there and help out. So Hull House opened a kindergarten and then a daycare And they started teaching classes that were open to neighborhood residents. And eventually they had high school and college extension courses with the University of Chicago. As their donations increased, they were able to purchase more of the surrounding buildings. And they created a 13 building complex with a gymnasium, social clubs, shops, housing, an art gallery, a bathhouse, a public kitchen, a music school, 
a drama theater, a library, an employment bureau, and playgrounds. Hull House was visited by around 2,000 people every week. Oh, snap. That's legit. They had a city. They made a whole city. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. And in addition, for the residents and the volunteers, the house became a center for research, study, and debate on subjects of overcrowding, midwifery, infant mortality, fatigue, tuberculosis, typhoid, sanitary conditions, narcotics consumption, and truancy. Mm. This is such a variety. I wonder how they chose these subjects to focus on. Actually, what's truancy? Not going to school without good reason. Absenteeism. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Jessica. So did they just research and debate or did they set out to do something about all these things? So it was through this research that they were able to identify that there was political corruption and that the city was ignoring health, sanitation and building codes in specific geographic areas of the city. And Jane worked to create equitable distribution of city services and inspections. This seems quite extraordinary, considering the time period. A lot of these topics are so relevant to today. Fascinating. Yeah, it's nutty how relevant this is more than a century later. Yeah, most definitely. So as an example, Jane became concerned with the garbage conditions in the area. And she installed an incinerator at Hull House. And when the city didn't listen to her complaints about the garbage collection in her ward, she tried to get a job as a garbage collector. And I guess the city wouldn't let her. I'm not really sure why, but they did make her the inspector of garbage in 1895. And then she made sure that the collection was timely and all the trash was burned properly. Boy, she tried to get a job as a garbage collector. (laughs) (laughs) That's so Leslie Nope. Yeah. But that's so suspicious. Like, first of all, she couldn't do it herself. Why not? Because she's a woman. And second of all, she couldn't do it, but she could be in charge of the people who do. I feel like this was their way of getting her off their backs. Yeah, I guess so. I'm not really sure. So the neighborhood where Hull House was located had a wide variety of European ethnic groups, German, Jewish, Greek, French, Canadian, Italian, Russian, Polish, and Irish. And between 1890 and 1910, 12 million Europeans immigrated to the U.S. and they provided cheap factory labor, but they were often living in very crowded and unsanitary environments. How very convenient of the corrupt politicians to ignore those communities. And how amazing of Jane to have realized that area would be where she would be able to do the most good. So I guess this is like her contribution to what was going on to society, providing housing or resources to immigrants. Yeah, I think that was part of it. But another reason that I think this was a passion project for Jane was that it gave women an opportunity to do something more concrete and useful in a time when careers for women were not common, yet wealthy families were educating their daughters. And this was something that had always frustrated Jane. And I think it was part of the reason that she wanted to go to medical school because it felt like the only way for her to have a career and help less privileged communities. Wow. What a revolutionary way of thinking. Yeah, that is so forward thinking. She was recognizing the privilege she had, was upset others didn't have it too, and was looking for ways to share it. I love it. 
Also, what about her girlfriend, Ellen? Was she as involved or was she still living there? Yeah, she was still living there. But eventually Ellen and Jane broke up and Jane began an almost 40 year relationship with another Hull House supporter and philanthropist, Mary Rosette Smith. The two of them owned a house together in Maine, and apparently when they weren't together, they would write to each other every day or sometimes twice a day. Goodbye, Ellen. Hello, Mary. They wrote to each other twice a day? Kick you? So was Mary involved with helping the disadvantaged like Jane? So Mary was also a philanthropist, and she met Jane through supporting Hull House, but she didn't live there at first. She lived with her mother until she died and then moved into Hull House with Jane and the other ladies. Jane considered them to be in a marriage. Ah, I see. Ah, beautiful. So what happened next in the Hull House? Right. So because of all the research that was being done at Hull House, many projects as part of a reform movement were able to go forward, such as the Immigrants Protective League, the Juvenile Protective Association, the first juvenile court system in the U.S., and a juvenile psychopathic clinic, or the Institute for Juvenile Research. They also helped to pass protective legislation for women and children in Illinois in 1893 and create the Federal Children's Bureau in 1912 and pass a federal child labor law in 1916. Double W. Wow. That's right. She's challenging Catherine Bauer on who has the longer list of achievements. The Battle of Achievements. Yeah. Oh, wait. That episode has not come out yet. That's right. So stay tuned. Also, side note, all of those that you're listing, Mm -hmm. I think that's also a future episode alert with Frances Perkins, too. Yeah, it makes sense because she was part of all of that. Mm -hmm. So y'all need to listen to the rest of the season. Yeah. Back to Jane. Yeah, so back to Jane. So Jane wrote about all of these experiences and the things going on related to Hull House and ended up writing 11 books on top of many articles and speaking engagements nationwide and worldwide. She founded the Chicago Federation of Settlements in 1894, helped start the National Federation of Settlements and Neighborhood Centers in 1911. She was also active in the campaign for women's suffrage and the founding of the NAACP in 1909, and the ACLU in 1920. Wait, what? The NAACP and the ACLU? These are groups that first still exist today, and second, these groups were so useful in implementing change in America. I'm telling you, our girl was way ahead of her time. She sounds like a good ally. She was a sponsor and an advocate for so many people that didn't have the same voice and opportunity she did. I want to be Jane Addams when I grow up. Yeah, I do think that she was trying to advocate for all people. But I did wonder about Hull House because from what I read, the demographics of the people they were helping in the neighborhood were primarily white. Now, what I don't know is if that was simply a factor of the neighborhood that they set up in and that's just who happened to be living there. I mean, Chicago was still segregated at that time, so that could have also played into it. I didn't read anything that said that she was actively turning away people of color or anything, but it is something that I noticed. I mean, maybe race and accepting of other people of color into these houses was a conversation that 
they just weren't ready to have. Yeah, maybe some would argue that she could have done more. But to Jessica's point, she was probably doing the best she could in the times that she was living in. And it's pretty clear to me that she wanted to help all minorities with the forming of the NAACP and all. And to add, if Jane was to create a whole house to aid black people, she would have had to purposefully look for one and create one in those communities, Mm -hmm. which could have also created another set of problems onto themselves. With her work, as far as we know, and her helping create the NAACP and the ACLU, she was definitely an ally and an advocate for Black people and people of color. All right, all right, Lizzie. What happens next with Jane? All right. So in addition to all that, Jane was a huge part of the start of sociology and social work as a field in the U.S. Through Hull House, she became close with early members of the Chicago School of Sociology and was part of creating the academic literature and the direction of the program. The University of Chicago began its sociology department three years after Hull House opened, and many of the early professors became very involved with Hull House, and women residents of Hull House would teach classes in the Chicago sociology department. She created careers! How do you top that? (laughs) Lizzie, would you say that the Hull House was like a case study for the university? Yeah, I mean, it was the first of its kind in the U.S., so in a way, I would say yes. It's interesting to think that the concept of settlement houses basically created a profession or a type of career or more like two professions, sociology and social work. Yeah, and apparently after World War I, the focus of the Chicago Sociology Department moved away from social activism because that was associated with communism and a weaker woman's work. In response, women sociologists, quote, were moved en masse out of sociology and into social work, end quote, in 1920. Because of this, all of the work that Jane and the Hull House members had done was forgotten. It wasn't until Mary Jo Deegan wrote a book in 1988 called Jane Addams and the Men of the Chicago School that her influence on sociology was recognized. Wow. From 1920 to 1988? All of that work and research forgotten? So creating different professions, developing urban planning ideas, programs, and buildings. This was weaker women's work. How does that make any sense? I know. Yet another example of men leaving out women's accomplishments. So Jane was also a huge pacifist, and she spoke out against war around the world. In 1913, she spoke on peace at a ceremony for the building of the Peace Palace in The Hague. Remember that this is the year before World War I begins. Uh Uh-oh. Oh, snap. Yeah, so Jane was very outspoken against the U.S. entering World War I, which did not make her super popular. The press were really harsh on her, and in fact, the DAR kicked her out because she spoke against the war. Gasp. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) yeah you never really hear about people getting kicked out of the dar (laughs) sort of makes sense it's in the name revolution you know (laughs) it makes sense that they kicked her out (laughs) well so despite this she continued to fight and speak about peace and she was made the chairman of the women's peace party and also the president of the International Congress of Women, which gathered in The Hague in 1915. 
Later, the Women's International League for Peace was founded, and Jane served as the president until 1929. And despite her being against the war, she was able to provide humanitarian aid as an assistant to Herbert Hoover in sending food supplies to women and children of the enemy nations. Okay, girl, this woman is incredible. Look at her helping people, and she isn't even a doctor. Yeah, dream come true. Also, helping out enemies? She's a saint. Yeah. Well, Jane was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize on December 10, 1931, and she was the first American woman to win the award and the second woman ever to win the award. Seriously, how could she not win this Peace Prize? A well-deserved award for sure. Yeah. Unfortunately, she wasn't able to attend the ceremony because she was in the hospital. She had had a heart attack in 1926, and after that, her health really declined. Mary nursed her from that time onward. Then in 1934, Mary passed away from pneumonia, and Jane was too sick to go down the stairs to be at Mary's memorial service, and she had to hear it from her second floor room. Oh, no, that that was so sad. I knew there was too much positivity happening with Jane. Right? Like, it's too much good. And then it just gets really sad at the end. Too many ups and downs. How sad she didn't get to go to the ceremony or the memorial. Yeah. And a year later, Jane had surgery and they found out that she had cancer. And then she died three days later at the age of 74. Oh, wow. She died so suddenly. It was probably the grief of losing Mary. And maybe the cancer, too. Maybe. Well, she died from a broken heart, and then the cancer came second. Right. A roller coaster of emotions until the end. As always. Yep. Ups and downs. Well, after Jane died, Hull House continued to operate and serve the community until the Chicago branch of the University of Illinois came and built their campus in that area, and they displaced them in 1963. All the buildings but the main mansion and one other were demolished. Today, the house is part of the College of Architecture and Arts of the University of Illinois and is called the Jane Addams Hull House Museum to commemorate Jane and the work done by the residents. This place sounds like another Arc Venture location to add to our list. Yeah, for sure. But I wish it would still exist today as the Hull House serving the community. How sad that the building got demolished and people were displaced. Yeah, Ugh. this topic will come up again, I believe, in future episodes. But I really enjoyed this story, though. I think what makes this conversation so interesting and relevant to today is the role of architecture as activism. In previous seasons, we talk about how our ladies innovated architecture by creating new design concepts, innovative technologies, etc. What makes this season so interesting, and with this episode in particular, is that Jane uses architecture as a tool for research, and her impact goes beyond urban planning. She created basically a profession and influenced another. She founded agencies that are so influential to this day. I completely agree. I wish we could see Hull House today. I love how she puts so much thought on how spaces in a city could be civic and inclusive. How she impacted so many aspects of life, from garbage collection to agencies. Yeah. 
And uh, can we also talk about her relationship? We just want to point out that we are an inclusive group here at She Builds Podcast. So it's nice to hear of a relationship like Jane's. Yeah, yeah, beautiful, pigeon-toed and all, out here, still finding love. <laughs> Everybody's gonna love today, love today, any way you want to, any way you've got to, love, love me. Well, thank you for that rendition. You're welcome. So before we leave you, we have to tell you who our karyotid is for this week's episode. Jessica, can you remind us what a karyotid is? You got it, double A RAR. <laughs> yeah! <Okay. laughs> Hashtag double A RAR. Okay, for some background. A karyotid is a stone carving of a woman used as a column or a pillar to support the structure of a Greek or Greek-style building. Each episode, we would choose a karyotid, a woman who is working today furthering the profession through their work, and who ties into the historical woman of our episode. Thank you. Without further ado, this week's karyotid is... <laughs> Tony Griffin! Yay! Tony! All right, so Tony is originally from Chicago. She received a Bachelor's of Architecture from the University of Notre Dame. And then she was a Loeb Fellow at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. After graduating, she worked for Skidmore Owings and Merrill, SOM, for 10 years. She then went to work as a city planner in Newark and Washington, D.C., before deciding that she kept seeing the same issues in all of the cities she had worked in, and she wanted to do something about it. A woman of action. Yep. So in 2009, she founded Urban American City, or Urban AC, in New York City. The company is a planning and design management practice that partners with public, private, and nonprofit groups to create urban justice through design and inclusive collaborations in order to address historic and current disparities involving race, class, and generation. Yes, Tony is awesome. I heard her speak once back when we were in Syracuse. I had attended the NOMA conference where she was a keynote speaker. And I remember hearing her speak about her work with the Detroit revitalization projects happening there. Very cool. That's so cool that you got to see her live. In-person conferences. What a wonderful time. I wish I knew then what I know now of her. I just remember being really inspired and in awe of what an architect can do. Yeah. So she was hired by the city of Detroit and many other major U.S. cities like St. Louis, Memphis and Milwaukee to consult on how they could look differently at the various urban issues that they were facing. Oh, that is so interesting. I really want to go look up these projects and see what exactly they did. Yeah, I wonder how she did it. So one of the ways that they go about researching and figuring out what a city or a community needs is through engagement with a variety of community members. And one way they interact with them and collect relevant data is through her Just City Index. So Tony also runs the Just City Lab out of the Harvard GSD, where she also teaches. She started this idea when she was at City College of New York, and I feel like she says it best, so I will quote her from an interview. This work has to be rooted in transparency of data so that all participants in the work of building and revitalizing cities operate off the same information but also recognizing community members as experts in the conditions of their own environment. So we've created the Just City Index, an index of 50 values, 
which we offer to communities to use to help set a shared direction before moving into the more technocratic work of developing plans, strategies, and proposals. One person's or one city's sense of community may be very different from another. Conditions of injustice in Gary, Indiana are very different from those in El Paso or Miami. So the index is a way to get closer to the root of the challenge as well as the proposition for the aspiration. Wow. This may be a stretch, but it reminds me of Florence from episode 21 with her evidence-based design. I think it's really interesting and helpful that Tony developed a metric to evaluate these different human conditions and learn how to help different communities better. Well... Florence was interested in the efficiency for hospital design and her research backed up those decisions. Tony is looking at it from a city's demographic. What I like about this index, or well, from both ladies, actually, from Tony and Florence, is that they're making these design problems more attainable to create a solution for. I might look at the problems in Gary, Indiana and look at the solution proposed and think, this can't work in Miami. Miami has these specific issues and blah, 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 blah. But with this index, it looks like it's a resource to help answer some of those questions. I can look at these cities to compare, but not look at them as this like one size fits all solution. Exactly. I think a lot of urban planning theory that we learned about in school is often looking for the ideal situation And in reality, every city has its own issues that the ideal solution doesn't necessarily address. Mm -hmm. That's so true. There is no universal solution. Also, Tony reminds me of Jane in their strong sense of advocacy through design and how they conduct experiments and research on the community that they live in. How they both had ideas of what design could achieve and the responsibility designers have to put these changes in place, I think that's really powerful and great. Yeah. It also makes me wonder of how Jane's model could be applied to other cities in the present. The way that Tony has her index and it can be applied to the other cities. I wonder if Jane's whole house concept can be added to these other large cities And what would be some of the things that need to be considered or like what programs could be added for that city? Yeah, this is what I mean. This is why I'm so sad that the whole house doesn't exist anymore and we don't see how it lives and works today. And I bet that it could have been a model for other places. We should do it. Let's start our own whole house, ladies. Okay, which city? Because we all three live in different locations. We'll talk about that (laughs) offline. Okay. Have your people call my people. Yeah, for now, let's end this episode. All right. So before we say goodbye, we want to say thank you to CMYK for the music, John W., our technical producer, and most of all, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed learning about Jane and Tony along with our banter and that you are inspired to find out more about them and other amazing professional ladies. Thank you again. Please let us know what you thought of our episode. If you've enjoyed it, please help us spread the word. Tell your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, your family members, your sociologists, your social workers. Give us five stars on iTunes. Write us a review. This will all help us reach a wider audience and for more people to learn about these amazing ladies with us. 
We are excited to hear from you and for you to come back and keep learning about women bosses with us. You can email us your thoughts at shebuildspodcast at gmail.com. Leave a comment on our website, shebuildspodcast.com. Or follow us on Instagram and Facebook at She Builds Podcast and on Twitter, She Builds Pod. Until then, bye. 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 Wait, where are we? Sorry, I lost my spot. Yeah, I got lost. Page five. <laughs> Why was I okay. all the way on page two? <laughs> Who knows, Jessica? <laughs> I'm so sorry, John. <laughs> <laughs>